1968, one of my uh, Christian friends at CU, who was a relatively new Christian, his name was Jeff Aoki, and he invites me to, um, to his parents who had a Japanese restaurant on Larimer Street, and that used to be where all the Japanese restaurants were. And uh, so he invites me to his restaurant for a special festival where we'll try all the uh, wonderful Japanese delicacies. Well, I said, like what? He says, well, come and see. You've got to try it once. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, so at that time, you know, he gave me something, and it was chewy, and I didn't really like it much, and salty and seaweed. I said, what's that? He goes, well, that's what you people call octopus. I said, okay. And I... And then we went to Squid, and then he said, here, try this. And he said, at the end, you don't want to know what that was. <laughs> it was something way down deep. I, you know, hang gliding was fun, and it was safe because of the people who were guiding me. But sometimes when you try something once, it doesn't always turn out to be a good thing. Can I ask you a question now? How many of you have ever opened a brand new church facility? In other words, you've been involved, not with a remodel. Don't raise your hands yet. Not with a re- Yes, I know, you have, okay, over there. But not with a remodel or an addition, but a brand new church facility. Raise your, okay, a few of you. Well, good for you. Uh, most of us have not. Uh, I have been involved in many remodels. I've done uh, an existing building that was a post office and been involved in helping it become a church or all these other things. But this is, you know, this is something for me. And I hope it's something for you. You see, what we are about to launch for many of us will be one-in-a-lifetime sort of experience. Uh, and I say that because of where our culture is going and also just the, the knowledge that brand-new churches don't come along, brand-new church facilities don't come along that often. Now, some of you who are here may be visitors, and it doesn't really motivate you, and I get that. Some of you are out-of-town family, and you're happy for your family that's here, and, and, and that's fine. Others of you may be just checking us out and not sure this is where you want to be. Um, and, and you might opt out of what we're about to go through, and that's fine. Some of you, by the way, may be hermits, and you say, I'm not really into people, and so is there anything I can do by myself? And the answer is probably not. And others of you... <laughs> Others of you may fear anything new because it's always backfired when you try something new. But for most of us, I want to say this. This is not just something to observe. I hope you see it as something that you're going to get involved in. You're going to be a participant. And it can be one of those, uh, you might say, events for a follower of Jesus where you actually say, I just didn't sign up. But as I got involved, I saw God at work through other people, but also God at work through me. You mean moving chairs, God can be at work? Well, let's not stretch it that far. Yes, but it is possible. It is possible if you're never showing up to serve that God is working in you through serving. Uh, So I want you to seriously consider how you can be a part of this, this great event, this, this wonderful endeavor, this celebration. And each week we're going to be giving you like new seeds that you can plant in your heart and see what sprouts, what nurtures, what's, what warms your heart. And it's not like we're going to ask you to do everything, but there are going to be some things. And some of the things should be brand new to you. You've never done it before. 
and maybe some other things would be, you know, I'm gifted in this. I've done it a lot. Um, and, and I want to say this. If you're not a follower of Jesus um, at this moment, uh, you may have no motivation to help, and we certainly understand. If you are considering Jesus in terms of following him in your life, this may be something that God uses in your life because we believe he uses your mind and he uses your heart, he, but he also uses your hands and feet. And there's something about being in his work that convinces you more about who he is. Uh, and if you are one who's a follower of Jesus, understand this. We're not just talking about a building here, though a building is very exciting. We're talking about a season of God's spirit, or what I like to call a God thing. I would like to invite you into what I'm calling a God thing, and I will be explaining to you and to others in the community why I call it that. And I would like you to compare what we are about to do with something that Jesus wanted his followers, especially his disciples, to buy into uh, about 2,000 years ago. And, and what is it? Jesus, you see, put up help-wanted signs himself. And he did it early in his ministry. He did it be- soon before his death and many times in between. It's just that most of the people did not see the help-wanted signs, or when they saw them, they did not apply for the job. And that's because they're fixated on other things. When, when you see help-wanted, you might be saying, well, what's the problem they want fixed? I'll fixate on the problem. Or you might fixate instead on the size of the problem, and that's way too big for me to have any contribution in. And others would be saying, there's no problem. Take the sign down. That's not a problem. Um, Sometimes we get so grounded in the earthly realities that we miss what God can be up to at the moment. And Jesus finds this to be true with his own disciples uh, and all of those around him. So if you have trouble envisioning what God is about to do, I want to say welcome to the human race. So does his disciples who are so close to him, they can reach out and touch him. You see, uh, the work of God is often an unrecognized reality. And, And this comes up very early in Jesus' ministry when he's taking his disciples on a tour through uh, from Galilee into Judea. And I want to say this. When you go from Galilee and you're going into Judea and you're in the, either in the midst of Jerusalem or, or you're getting close to Jerusalem, it's like, like being in a suburb of Jerusalem, it can almost seem like moving from Craig, Colorado to Denver, Colorado. Anybody ever lived in Craig? There's houses there, Okay. And it's a, it's a wonderful train station, and it's got great coal mines, and, 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 it, and it's, uh, Barb and I have driven through there on Route 40 quite a bit. But uh, there's no natural history museum. The Broncos don't play there. And let me go on and on. In, in terms of culture, they're a million miles apart. In terms of distance, just a couple hundred. Galilee was only about 25 miles from Jerusalem. But because of the transportation then, culturally it was huge. So Jesus' Galileans' disciples were amazed. They might have been at Jerusalem from time to time, but now he was taking them there and keeping them there and being involved in ministry in that area. So as he does this, Jesus' fame is swelling. 
Uh, people are just all around him. He can't get away from them. He's more famous than Herod. He's more desirable than Caesar himself. And so it's at this very key time that he gathers his disciples together and says, it's time for a, a change in strategy. We're going to do things just a little differently. And I, I want you to know, you disciples, you're involved. So let me take you to that passage. It's in Matthew uh, and it's Matthew chapter 9, and it's about verse 35. I think I'm going to start in about verse 35. Uh, it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, he sees huge crowds, and his compassion is on the crowds, but each individual, uh, because people are broken, they're they're disappointed. Their uh, life's just not working, and, and and so he sees that, and he says, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, and he understands he's the shepherd they're flocking to, but it's not enough. And then he said to his disciples, "Look at this: the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few." Verse thirty-eight. Ask. The Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, there may have been some time in between this last part of chapter 9 and the first verse of chapter 10, but many think it's, you know, they just decided they needed a new chapter. And, and so, uh, because the chapters were not done scientifically, uh, they are not inspired. They're not. Okay. Um, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease uh, and sickness. And he puts them in pairs and he says, now your job is to do what I'm doing, but now you're going to go out in pairs and do six times more ministry than I can do on my own. So as they had been going to different towns and villages, he now sends them as pairs to go out them, to, to go out there. And he, he tells them, he gives them instructions. He tells them how to do this ministry. He tells them what they're supposed to do. But did you see that what he's talking about really in verse 37? He's telling them why. He's telling them why you should do this. I'm a why person. If you don't tell me why, you know, what's the purpose behind all this, I, I'm usually not as excited. He wants them to know why. The harvest is plentiful is why, but the workers are few is why. The harvest is plentiful. It's bigger than me in my physical body. And the workers are few. And now I'm multiplying myself six times through six pairs that are going to go out. He does not send them out to be rejected or, or abused. He knows that people are hungry for what they're going to bring, just as they've been hungry for what Jesus brings. And they can go to six times more places than Jesus could go in his human form. So that is the first time that he sends out the twelve. Now, the Gospel of Luke takes it a step further. The Gospel of Luke says that there is another moment in what we call Jesus' victory tour in which he's trying to, be, uh, to go spread himself as wide as possible before he makes his last trip to Jerusalem. And in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it says Jesus set his face like flint uh, to go to Jerusalem, knowing that is where he'd be crucified. But before that, he has the same strategy and he multiplies it again. 
So the crowds have never been bigger as he teaches huge numbers uh, and he teaches them radical things that they report back to their rabbis. Uh, He feeds 5,000 from nothing and he heals the disabled and the diseased in numbers greater than any prophet ever recorded. So this time he gathers 72 disciples and he puts them in pairs to do the same work that the 12 had done earlier. That's six times more pairs. Times 12, 72 still? Okay. 36 and 36 times more pairs than, than when Jesus uh, was doing it. So six times the original uh, six pairs. Wow, that's amazing. And, and as he goes out, he prepares them again. Now, many of the instructions are exactly the same, the what and the how to do it. But look at the why. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Well, wait a minute. That I mean, uh, you, you know, if you're a skeptic today, he so said, why would he say the same thing? Why would he tell them the same thing? Ask my kids. They say, I say the same thing all the time. Why do I say the same thing? Because I think it's important. Jesus probably did this more than once, just like he's, he, when he was in Galilee and he was, um, and he was speaking to uh, the, the, the fishermen. He said, follow me and I'll make you harvesters. No, fishers of men. So he's now out on the countryside, and he says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. There's not enough to, to, to reap the harvest that God has prepared. So he's saying, come be a harvester, you 72. Be harvesters for souls for God. And go out and reach 36 times more villages than I could reach by myself, and six times more villages uh, than, than the original band could do. So you go, wow, okay, now now you understand that this is getting out of hand. I mean, these people are going to go from village to village to village. There'll be very few places untouched in all of Israel. Now, there is a third time in which this analogy comes up. And this time, it's at another moment, probably between the first and the third. And this second time is from the Gospel of John. And it shows this, that at a certain moment, Jesus is walking through Samaria. Now, Jesus was walking through Samaria like very few Jews did because they felt like it was dishonoring God by walking through Samaria. It was making them unholy by being around unholy people. Jesus realized, no person can make me unholy. I'm God's son, so it's not going to have much effect on me. So he goes, he takes the shortcut. And as he goes through that shortcut... Um, he stops at a village, and as he stops there, what does he do? He sits down because he's tired. He, he sees a woman who's come. His disciples have gone to look for food. Uh, this woman whose life is totally broken, totally broken. She's been through five husbands, and the one she's now living with uh, won't marry her. I'd call that broken. She has no reason to hold her head high in the, in, in the village uh, that she lives in. And so she goes alone and Jesus speaks to her. He convinces her. He loves her and he transforms her so completely that the first thing she do, uh, the first thing she does is she goes uh, to the villagers that have rejected her, that don't want to spend time with her. And she says, come see the man who's told me everything I've ever done. This must be the Messiah, right? And, and, and they hear her. And a, a woman that they would never listen to because of what Jesus has done in her life and done through her, uh, they now listen to her. And Jesus has to stay three more days 
three more days so that the village can come to the same point of faith that this woman has. So they're transformed too. And here's what he says, because his disciples come back, and this is very important. His disciples come back, and and they see that he's talking to the woman, and and the conversation is just ending before she leaves. And and they come back, and it says this. Um, Oops, I lost it. It says they were surprised. There we go. Unprepared responders. Okay. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 27. The disciples come back and they were surprised to find him talking with this woman. They are surprised because, like so many of us, their mind is on so many other things. They found the food. They're ready to feed Jesus. They're ready to take their rest and move on and get out of that uh, that city that they shouldn't be in in the first place. So they're solving a problem that Jesus is not worried about. So in their surprise, now Jesus speaks out to them and he says, Why are you so surprised? Now, then he says, verse 35, Do you not say four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In other words, the time is now. And so because I've stopped here and this lady has come to me, uh, God has prepared her heart, the time is now. But most of us say, when Jesus says it's harvest time, most of us would say, Lord, you're not looking at my fields. Every time I look at my fields, they're not ready for harvest. Well, Lord, think about this. Uh, The fields of my relationships. I don't know anybody who's eager uh, to have a relationship with God. Uh, It's not anyone I know. It's not no one in my home. It's no one at my work. Nobody in my neighborhood. And all the surveys that come out from sociologists, which are done scientifically, would agree with you. I, I read a lot of surveys. I guess sociologists help psychologists get people depressed, especially ministers. Uh, I don't quite understand, but they claim in, in, in these articles that fewer and fewer people are going to church on a regular basis. Okay, fair enough. Then, then uh, an article I read said, it's not a good time for new church construction. I went, oh, no. <laughs> Oh, are we in for it? Oh, no. What are we going to do? It's too late. Uh, uh, Here's another one. Uh, Another survey claims that most Anglo-Americans will seek individual spirituality in the future, not corporate spirituality like a church. Uh, Now, I, 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 I love sociologists. I know a couple. Barb studied sociology. She loves me, I love her. Uh, when you all boil it down to, uh, boil it down, you get this conclusion. People are not interested in God, and that may be right in terms of the sociologist, but they're looking at it backwards. In other words, they're looking at what people are reporting from down here. They're not looking at what God is doing from up here down. Sociology is unable to do that. It's... Okay, you understand that sociology can't can't solve that. So here would be the headlines if you were looking up down. One of the headlines is Christian growth is a tsunami worldwide. It's going around the world so quick it can't be stopped. I just read this about a year ago. Uh, 
One certain organization was praying that it would plant a million churches in uh, India, and it started praying for this about 20 years ago. And about 2012, as they did their statistics, they said, oh my gosh, God's done it. God's done it. It's a tsunami. The same is going on in China, lots of parts of Asia. Uh, right now, uh, one of our members, uh, uh, Nick Donoff, is over there uh, helping the, the Christian leaders of places like um, uh, uh, Vietnam. Uh, as, as it, again, it's growing there, but in a much smaller way, something that sociologists aren't touching. Here's another one uh, <clears throat> where the sociologists would say uh, people are not interested in God. From heaven, there'd be a headline, God's very interested in you. He's very interested in you. And he's at work. And he's not about to stop. If you think you're an impossible case, oh, come on. Nothing is impossible for God. So I, I, I want you to know that sometimes our problem is in the identity not of what science is telling us, which is not necessarily untrue. It's just looking at it from a different perspective and from what God is telling us. Like here, here's something that Peter wrote. Peter, who was with you know one of those 12 that was sent out in pairs, one of those 72 that was sent out in pairs, and he says this to the believers in First, in first Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you, Christians, that I'm writing to are a chosen people. In other words, God's been at work doing his sovereign will in your life. You are a royal priesthood. You don't feel holy, but he says that God has made you holy. You're a holy nation. In other words, you may be separated by distance, but you are together in your faith in Christ, a nation of people belonging to God. Why? 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 I love the why. Here's the why. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You've taken these new identities from your Savior so that you can declare the praises of what he's done. And God is still telling his followers today. He's still speaking the same message. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And the workers are the ones, probably the only ones, who hear what Jesus is saying and, and, and they hear him make this statement and they realize that he wants them to be harvesters. Have you heard Jesus say these words to you? I mean, you look at your neighborhood or your work or other places and you think, well, he can't be speaking to me. But have you heard him say these words to you? The disciples, as we said, were surprised. They spent a lot of their life with Jesus, surprised. And shouldn't we be surprised too? So what we say is, well, Lord, we're faithful followers, but we're not harvesters. We're generous givers, which we are. But we're not harvesters. We're intense Bible students. We go to lots of Bible studies. But we're not harvesters. We're moral examples. But we're not harvesters. Well, sometimes it just takes the right situation. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, which some of you disagree with, and the sociologists disagree with, but this might be the moment 
in which the harvest, at least for us here at Bergen Park Church, we have a chance to harvest maybe as we never had before. And you're saying, Jim, just a building? Yeah, to us, it's not that important. But I want to tell you what's going on around us. and, and this, I said this last week, it's become even more evident this week in phone calls I've received. Um, our community is curious and our community is impressed. Thousands of cars go by that building and they say, what church would build a building like that? And, I mean, because it's really nice. And, and, and more than that, they are saying, how can such a small church, those who know Bergen Park Church, be able to do something like that? And so they are curious and they're impressed. I've heard a few skeptics say, how large is your mortgage? Okay. And are you going to be able to pay it? Well, some from our own denomination. Okay. Um, and, and all I can say is that uh, I expect when they receive an invitation to come to either our open house coming up or an Argyle worship service, we'll give you the dates next week, um, when they get that invitation, uh, they'll say, hey, I'm curious. I'd like to go see it. What else is going on here? I can't ice skate on the lake. Uh, this is pretty big for our community. We haven't seen much like this. And so they're curious, and they'd love to go inside because it's impressive to them. Why is it impressive? Well, partially because it's new, but it's, it's more than that. And as they ask, how can such a small church afford such a large building? Uh, I, I, I say, well, you know, we took a survey back in 2008 and had 20 priorities we couldn't do. And we said, any building we're going to be in has to fit this, these additional priorities. And, and, and so that's, you know, they were sort of fulfilled in that building. Um, but as I do that, they're asking the sociologist's view. And I'm saying, I think this is a God story. I think it is a God thing. They look at it. And they're saying, you know, I'm impressed, so I think it's a success story. It's a success story. I call it a God story. That doesn't mean there's no God in their lives, but, but it's just the, the secular way of looking at things. There was a small, about this long of a, of, of a, call, uh, of a story uh, in the local newspaper uh, that talked about a harvest dinner that was held by a service group, a service club, in our community just around Thanksgiving time. And it finally got in in the New Year. And it said, Harvest Dinner Declared Great Success was the headline. And, uh, and then, uh, at, you know, then there was a picture of three people that did the great success, three people, and then three paragraphs. So, you know, I, I was sort of wondering, how do we define success? How do we define it? Well, in our, um, in, in our culture, the last thing we want to say, uh, it was an utter failure. So if it's not an utter failure, what is it? A success. Uh, if it wasn't a disaster, what is it? It was a success. It wasn't just a completed event. It was a success because it was a completed event. We use the term very usefully, uh, loosely, don't we, when we talk about what is a success. Well, the funny thing is, is I read that story, and all week long, this person has been trying to call me. I finally called back, and it's the, one of the leaders of this service club. Same one. Same one. 
And, and, she, and I know her in the community. And she says, uh, uh, Jim, we'd like you to speak uh, about a 10 to 20 minute motivational talk at our service club coming up. And I said, well, okay, what motivates me is Jesus Christ, but I don't think you want that. And, she, and there was silence. And, 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 and this woman believes in God, and, and, and I know her. Um, she goes, no, that probably isn't the right thing. And, and I said, well, you know, I may be wrong here, but I think your service club has a commitment to prayer. She goes, yeah. I said, well, supposing I shared about a long-term prayer that's answered. Like what? I said, well, like our new facility. And I said, some of us started in 1997 or even earlier praying about this. So you do the math, 17, 18 years, and it's finally come to fruition. She said, that's perfect. Okay. And and can I bring invitations so that, you know, people might be curious and impressed uh, with with the building they see and the God story behind it because that's what I want to call it. And she goes, yes, please, please do that. And I said, you're sure? Because, you know, when I mark it down, uh, you can call me any time and say that's not going to fit. And she goes, no, that, I, I think that'll work. I said, has anybody else done anything like this? No, no, probably not. But we're hoping you talk about the new construction. Okay. I can do that as long as you let me couch it in the right sort of, uh, uh, you might say, uh, uh, Christian culture. So it, it's on, and we'll see if she has second thoughts. But uh, let's face it. In our world, and there's nothing wrong with this, we love progress. And we love success. None of you took up a career to blow it. You're hoping for promotions. You're hoping for raises. You're hoping that you know it just you just get better and better at it. And you should. There's nothing wrong with progress and success. The problem is, is that sometimes uh, we love success, and and it, it's not that it's bad, but it can't take the place of truth and God's reality. Uh, success can become one of those idols that does not deliver. Let, listen to this quote. <clears throat> I'll give you the the person who said it just a little bit later. Uh, My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody with a capital S, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I forget her real name, but we know her as Madonna. Madonna, as she was rising in fame. Now, you ask your kids now, if they're under 12, who is Madonna? And she's a, she's a nobody. Never heard of her. But we have. Let me give another example of how much we love success. The president of Wake Forest, uh, Nathan Hatch, wrote in 2009 during the, the launch, and you might say the, as our Great Recession was really going downhill, um, He said, he wrote a truth that most educators have known for years. He says this, too many students are cramming into the fields of finance, corporate law, and specialized medicine because of the high salaries and the aura of success that these professions bring. 
fair enough. There's nothing wrong with going into those. Unless you're not suited to it. Instead of choosing a profession that answers the question, what job helps people to flourish? They choose a careers that answer, what job helped me to flourish? And then they wonder why they have to deal with such high frustration levels and unfulfillment in their lives and careers. It's because they were created for that. God has put in them through his creation a, a certain bent, a, a certain way to make contributions. And when you choose things because of the fame and the fortune that come with it, it you might find, you know what, this, this isn't a good fit. But I love, I love the perks. Um, we believe, and here's where success goes wrong, when we get to this point where we believe we are solely responsible for our own success. And it's true. You probably worked hard and studied hard and continue to learn and grow. Um, But God says, in addition to that, he blesses our efforts. And I know people have worked very hard. And and it doesn't seem like God has blessed them. And I want you to know, I've hardly worked at all, and God has blessed me greatly. Okay? Isn't that amazing? He's working on hearts today, saying the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And he's working on hearts and saying there are many out there that that are going to be turning to God. And sometimes... The contact that we have with people will just be a link in a long chain of events that eventually gets them there. But I predict that we're going to be in touch with people who are both curious and impressed who are probably a decade or more since they've been in a church facility. And they're going to want to see. I I do business with many of the people here in the Bergen Park uh, business section. I plan on taking personal invitations and saying, look, I've... I've given you business. And to say it nicely, but this is an invitation. I won't say that, but you know. I'll just give them an invitation. Please, come and see. If nothing else, just to say thanks, Jim, and, and, and thanks for your business, and I'll give you 20 minutes. Um, the harvest is plentiful, and it could be this is one of the most plentiful uh, sessions or seasons of Bergen Park Church's history. Could be. The souls of people are God's harvest. Therefore, we have to understand that we do little to get the crop ready for harvest. We have little input into how great the harvest is going to be or when the harvest will take place. But I'm here to say this is the moment to be God's workers for His harvest if you're a part of Bergen Park Church. And this may be hard to swallow, but for many reasons, um, for people who do not go to church, um, when we want to say they're impressed with our faith, um, they're impressed with our morality, uh, they're, they're impressed with the standing we have in the community. This is humble. You ready? They're going to be impressed with the building. But that's where we start. That's how you begin to harvest. For many people, it could be just that. 
I want to see. I'm curious. I'm impressed. So each week I'm giving you a help-wanted assignment. Here's your assignment. Uh, among your personal web of relationships, from work to community to neighborhood to, uh, uh, to schools to teams to everything else, I'm asking you to begin to pray to invite five to ten people to our grand opening weekend. Uh, we, what, here's what we're thinking, and, and these dates can change, but our open house will be Saturday afternoon, February 28th. And our inaugural worship service will be Sunday, March 1st, to invite them to one or both. Simple. I worship here. Why don't you come worship with me? Get it. You know, you've been wondering about it. So, so come and look. Every neighbor I have, that's all they talk to me about. Not how good looking I am. Nothing else. Not how much study I did this week. Uh, not how good my message was. Every neighbor, that's all they ask. So I would like you to consider in the weeks ahead in this community, among your family, friends, neighbors, uh, associates at work, the people you know in our community, that you have many relationships, would you consider inviting them to either our open house or public worship service and come with them? Come with them. We'll have invitations to give out. So, you know, you can actually hand them something. There'll be mailers sent out to at least North Evergreen, and there'll be local ads in the newspaper. I expect the buzz is going to increase. But what I'm asking you to do is to pray about asking. Think of names, five, ten specific names. If you're a visitor here today, you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. You're a harvester where you live. You're a harvester where you live. The methods will be different but you're a harvester where you live. And understand in our community, I know two have already said to me that have never been to our church, thanks for the invitation. Not I'll be there, thanks for the invitation. Okay, let's pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send out many workers. For the harvest that, God, you have already prepared. Lord, we thank you that um, I did not understand the effect on my neighborhood that this new facility would have. But interests are pert. We ask that this one, that this might be one of the peculiar ways that you use It'll be short-term, but there is buzz. People are asking. And at least, Lord, in somehow, some way, you want to use us to be involved in your harvest. We commit to doing what we can with the relationships that we currently have in our lives, to pray, to invite. And because we're praying, we're asked that we would go to people with boldness and confidence. We would assume that they really like us when we say, would you come with me? Let's go together. And more than that, that your Holy Spirit is not just working in our lives, but he's hovering over their lives. That's a promise that you have given. We thank you in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.